Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Lisa, you and I have had the discussion about what is happening in fixed income. Yeah. The riskier parts of credit that lagged last year started to pick up in December. Yeah. And the follow-through has been really positive. And there's a simple question that I think a lot of people are asking. Is it a sign of durability that the rally is broadening out yeah. or a sign of excess? Right, or a sign uh, of that perhaps this is not the leading indicator that it used to be. And I think that's been my big question this morning as you see junk bond yields within 16 basis points of their all-time low. We're talking about sub-5% high yield. It's not high yield anymore, and we're back to that level. And it's rallying much more than investment grade debt. I just wonder going forward, I mean... Is this appropriate, given where we are in the credit cycle? Should we bring in Shahab Jalanous, Credit Suisse Head of FX Macro Trading Strategy? Good morning to you, Shahab. Morning. What's the message for clients this morning? Well, we think, uh, although these concerns that you just mentioned are, are real concerns, uh, for now we think markets continue uh, pushing forward. Uh, the, the bottom line is that from a macro perspective, uh, we have a situation where the Fed and other central banks uh, are indicating that they're not looking to raise rates anytime right. soon. In fact, there could be monetary policy framework shifts that uh, bring forward ideas like looking at inflation <clears> on <throat> average over a cycle and waiting until inflation is above target for a while. So there's no macro risk at this point that the market can see on the monetary policy side. And I think that's one of the issues that's driving markets. There was a headline out Shahab, this morning on Spanish bonds. And all our listeners need to know, particularly coast to coast across America, is the number was ginormous. The demand for paper is exceptional. Jeffrey Yu with UBS went on with this earlier. This is one of his great themes. Do you see that from where you are in foreign exchange, that there's just simply a wall of money out there? Absolutely. Uh, for example, one of the themes at the moment is uh, the large amounts of reverse Yankee bond issuance. So U.S. companies issuing a reverse debt. Yankee. That's where they're in last place, right? <laughs> no, you could say. Well, you know, there's essentially a. a, I, a I smiled. A, I smiled at that. That's time. baseball, Lisa. No, I am familiar okay. with oh, what thank that you. is. I'm giving you. What a is a reverse here. Yankee? She'll have. So you can have a situation uh, where a U.S. company w- would want to issue debt in in Europe uh, and then take that money and invest it in other parts of the world, for example, in the US itself. Uh, and this kind of issuance is, is frequent when there's a belief that rates are going to be low in Europe for a long time uh, and that funding costs are going to be lower if you raise money in Europe. Uh, and in essence, the idea that negative yields are going to sustain in Europe is one of the factors that's driving this. So uh, there is, uh, in that sense, a wall of money, clearly, because companies feel that they can go to Europe and and easily fund themselves and get money. I do have to wonder, uh, John, you raised the issue of durability, and I think that that's a really important one. And I think that I I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but I guess that's where I've been pigeonholed. Oh, Tom, you don't have to give me that look. He's raising his eyebrows at me. But I will say there's a question. Do you get in now uh, at a time when we are later? And there is a question about liquidity, uh, the ability to get out when you actually see a problem. Do you continue to take that risk given the fact that you're rewarded for it or do you back off? It's difficult to back off simply because every day that you've backed off, you're losing money in effect. Um, And because at the end of the day, there's a relative component to to this as well. So uh, like I said, you've got negative rates in Europe. There's no sign that that's going to change. Uh, And the US, the market's still pricing in another Fed cut over the course of this year. 
and it's not just the US, in the rest of G10, the UK could well, cut again, Australia could cut. Very difficult macro backdrop to try to fade uh, where, where markets I'm glad are. you're bringing this up, Shab. John, the hockey stick on British rate cut expectations is absolutely extraordinary. Driven by the policymakers more than the data. A real about turn from Governor Carney and yeah. others as well. I find it absolutely fascinating. Where did it come from? On what? Three months ago, well, we heard nothing GDP about this. statistic as well. Oh, but come on. It's all this ebb and flow. I mean, Shahab, and this speaks for all of Credit, Credit Suisse research. Are you guys glass half full or glass half empty right now as a general investment statement? We're definitely glass half full still. Um, as, as overall, we're less uh, half full. Maybe, well, can you be less half full? Mm -hmm. We were more optimistic three months ago just because valuations were better three months ago when, right. when uh, risky assets... Uh, we're still pricing in uncertainty around things like the U.S.-China trade deal. Some of that has gone away. So obviously, yeah. as, you, as you mentioned, uh, it's not as attractive as it was. Uh, having said that, there's no obvious signal yet to back okay. away. And in fact, price action uh, still tells us that too. For example, the uh, Iran risks that came through at the beginning of the year, if markets really were uh, as overwhelmingly long risk as everybody suspects or mm -hmm. talks about. There should have been a more dramatic yeah. reaction to that, and, and there really wasn't. Shab, thank you so much. Shab Jelinus with us with Credit Suisse. Looking at JP Morgan, I think we've got a better idea with a number of $36.4 billion for annual earnings. That's quite something for a US bank on a yearly, sir, that many people thought perhaps we'd go into recession. How does this correlate? On a year when we had three interest rate cuts, we've had record profit numbers out of JP Morgan. How does this correlate with the idea that banks are in a downward slump? Just throwing Terrible. that out there. Go to cash. Well, the stock price performance of last year doesn't correlate with that no. story either, does it? It outperformed the index. But, but people are saying that the, the sort of years of incredible profitability are over. This yeah, doesn't cohere with that. Tom didn't say that a year and a half ago. <laughs> well, he's next to us now. Tom Michaud, KBW CEO. Tom, you've read through the numbers. Your thoughts, please. Yes, uh, I think it's impressive. You mentioned the revenue growth, and you would combine that with only 3.9% operating expense growth and share repurchase of about 4% year over year, you put it together, it's it's dynamite. Now that, I think it's all about the operating leverage. Now, that revenue growth, remember, last fourth quarter was a terrible fixed income trading quarter. So I know it's an 80 plus percent improvement year over year, but that's not really normalized. That's more a story of how bad last year's fourth quarter was, but still it's really pretty good and it's more dollars than we thought it was gonna be. Yeah. So, so it was good performance, but but this type of operating leverage is really impressive. Well, what I find amazing about this is we're going to hear this again and again through the next 24 hours, that we knew this was going to be a big beat because we knew Q4 in 2018 was bad, but so did the whole analyst community, and they were still a billion dollars shy of fixed income trading revenue, Lisa. Yeah, that's been the issue here, is that they managed to beat and then some. Do we have a sense, Tom, of exactly where they benefited Yes, as a matter of fact, so relative to expectations, and our firm was a little bit more aggressive than than the average firm in terms of our estimate, but they had 16 cents a share of revenue beat, and they had 8 cents a share of mortgage banking miss, because that's one of the themes we haven't talked about is that rate, is that mortgage banking, yeah. we've been expecting there to be a little bit of a, uh, of a weaker mortgage banking quarter. So that happened, and when you look at that, uh, you'll see that it was really a very big quarter in terms of trading, 
fixed income was uh, were other big 20 plus cent per share beats relative to our estimates. You're reading that off your Bloomberg app on, on your cell phone, aren't you? Uh, I have a Bloomberg app on my cell phone, but I happen to be reading the direct delivery of oh, research okay. well, from but, my phone. But this is really compelling. In other words, it wasn't all uh, bright spots, right? The mortgage uh, decline, they had to offset somewhere. I'm wondering they did. what was better, what was so amazing that actually delivered this beat uh, that exceeded even the most aggressive of I, estimates? My, my sense is that the market for FIC trading and for equities was probably a little bit more generous than people thought. And I'm going to guess they picked up market share. So I think it's 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 from a who? well the bigger the biggest banks have been picking up market share from European banks is the data is what our research has shown and also the smaller players uh, continue to see pressure. So what's the sweat to merge right now? I'm sorry. What's the sweat to merge right now? January, everybody's back from the holidays. What is the sweat in small bank and regional banks to merge, merge, merge? I, I think you're going to see more consolidation because there's a understanding of how you got to take more costs out. Uh, uh, so we, we've got some long-term trends on efficiency ratios. Even the talk, you look at some of these banks, they're in the 50s, mid to high 50s. Uh, efficiency ratio, Wells Fargo is above that and hence their profitability is lower. So there's a little bit of a, of a competitive competition war on efficiency. And then while they're doing that, they're spending, at least the big banks, are spending billions of dollars on innovation. So the other banks in the industry are seeing that. And it's not game over for the regional banks. They just need to play to their strengths. They big need year. to play to their strengths. Big year last year. Some of these numbers validate some of the year this bank had. 2020, show me the year ahead. Reasons to be constructive, what are they, Tom? Okay, the industry's very profitable. The balance sheet's the strongest it's been in 80 years. The, some of the Dodd-Frank reforms of capital and liquidity reforms have made these banks safer. The American banks, the gap between their performance in Europe is widening of the big global banks. They will pick up more share globally. The and then the operate, but remember, all this is being said, but the regular banks mm -hmm. and the typical banks are going to have very little growth this year, if any. And it's because the cuts in interest rates have hit the margin. What we right. didn't talk about is that their net interest margin was down a lot. The rest no. of the, at JP Morgan, the rest of the industry's margin is going to be down a lot year over year. You have to let that season and get behind you. And once that happens in the back half of the year, mm -hmm. we think you'll start to see a pickup in operating leverage again for the banks. We've got to get you back soon. I've got like 10 more questions. Tom Michaud, thank you so much from Keith Buryat. It is Thanks, a steeful uh, company, KBW uh, as well. Lisa, a good time to speak. To Jeffrey Yu of UBS with one of the great insights last year of a wall of cash out there. It's inside baseball, Jeff Yu, but the Spain had a 10-year offering today and everybody lined up. It was way, way oversubscribed. What's its signal, the desperation that people need to buy full faith and credit paper? So, you know, right now that uh, yield environment is still very, very much in place. Uh, uh, we're saying, you know, disregarding credit risks or things like that, you know, perhaps. And, but, you know, people are willing to pay a premium for that. And that's purely reflecting, you know, that the new central banks, they're going to stay where they are, if not lower, for a very long time to come. Is it like 05, 06, 07, the memory of people trying to squeeze out 10 more basis points somewhere? Are we back there? 
so I think we, uh, the, on the market side, um, you can see some comparisons. I guess I remember back then when the carry trade was putting euro yen to 170 and Kiwi dollar was giving you, you know, 7% or the 8%, things like that. Uh, so, uh, so those trades are still there. But on the other hand, you know, if you look at balance sheet, if you look at the asset side, you know, clearly households, they're not taking up leverage, um, debt to income ratios, very stable. If anything, they're a bit more healthy. So I think that's why um, a lot of investors want to take on risk because they know that on the financial side, you're not going to see similarities to 10 years ago. In 2019, trade tensions with China and the US were really sort of hanging over the market and depressing gains that people said otherwise would have been there. Now we have the EU delegation coming to Washington, D.C. this week, uh, heating up over there with respect to the trade tensions. How much is that going to weigh things down, if at all, in 2020? Uh, so I think that's going to be one of the key risks um, that Europe in particular is going to look at. And I think, you know, holding back a lot of investors from going further risk on in Europe. Uh, Robert Lighthizer, you know, talked about rebalancing the trade relationship between the U.S. Uh, and the European Union. So the rhetoric, you know, hasn't been great. There are areas of cooperation, say, against, um, you know, China and the like. Um, but clearly, Europe wants a multilateral approach. They're not used to this kind of bilateral, um, you know, bargaining. Uh, so, you know, that is going to be a source of worry, especially for the auto industry in Europe, you know, for quite some time. Yeah. So are you expecting sort of an underperformance in the auto sector and industrials? Or do you think that this is just going to be sort of a general overhang? Um, so actually, on the industrial side, if you strip out autos, I think the outlook is not as in a negative. You know, the data stabilized, and um, that's what the uh, German Treasury curve is, uh, the the German Bund curve is, I'm telling you um, as well. But I think these are tactical shifts um, for the time being. Are we calling for reflation in Europe? You know, are we going to see um, you know the ECB start to change its language? You know, probably not. Uh, but again, you know, let's see yeah. how these talks go. Jeff, you, how do you measure effervescence? I mean, if we're up here, we're up there in a good and positive way across asset classes. What's the Jeffu measurement for exuberance? For exuberance vol. Again, I go back to being an FX guy. Um, and uh, if you look at how euro dollar, you know, implied vol, um, month, I think, you know, we're trading on the four handle, right? So, you know, those were just um, you know, levels where we where you would think unthinkable for, um, yes, it is the most liquid FX pair, you know, but for that to essentially, you know, become a, um, a uh, low carry or a negative carry near cash asset, you know, that, those are levels where 10, 15 years ago, you would tell yeah. someone from FX that you're a dollar trade on four, I'd say no, no chance, but that is happening. Again, going back to where central banks are. If we are at no chance, and it was one of my headlines last year, was the London annuity at 4.1%. I believe it was in the FT that was published. Are we going to see the actual rate of return for some of these annuity products actually go under 4%? To me, that's literally back to the 1930s. Um, that that would not be a surprise, and I think this underscores and 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 a bigger theme of again, you know, the, the the cash, you know, for these LDI managers, you know, for example, do they really need to be more like the Norwegians um, um go go towards risk, you know, be or be like the Canadians, you know, go. <laughs> back into uh, or go into a PE framework, you know, otherwise those rates are going to come down. How do you boost returns? And there's going to um, need to be a, a change or in mindset on the regulatory side. But again, if that cash goes out of fixed income, where yeah. is it going to go? Most likely equities. Uh, Lisa Bramowitz, Ian Lingen just publishing moments ago at BMO Capital Markets, CPI universally disappointed. Universally. He's watched on the street. That's yeah, well, phrase. to me, I mean, I think that this raises a question. 
question, how can you keep piling into risk at a time when you have a global economy that's steadily slowing? I mean, the fundamentals just don't matter anymore. Is that it? No, certainly not. It's not that it doesn't matter anymore. And I think people are going to focus on quality. You know, that's a message that we are sending to clients. So um, you go to company level fundamentals uh, and um, be clear uh, about stock picking, but also be clear what you want to own. So we don't want to own um, so in a corporate investment um, exposed sectors right now. We want to own consumer exposed sectors. And besides something that's been well flagged, again, credit in the US, on senior loans, things like that. But the moment that um, credit begins um, to crack, the moment, you know, where we'd really start to do default rates you know go up where better fundamentals on the household side is no longer enough you know yeah. to sustain the credit valuations <clears throat> we're seeing right now that's when we need to reassess jeffrey you thank you so much with ubs and their wealth management division just wonderful and cross-set analysis right now my favorite strategist is here. She's head of strategy for BNY Mellon. And Alicia Levine is my favorite strategist because, because, Paul, she has so much Wall Street experience that she puts it on one page. Yes. Did you ever notice and that? she highlights it There's for no seven-page memos. <laughs> There's no 20-page, you know, it's, it's like, remember like Sanford Bernstein in the Black Book? Yes, I did. You'd walk around with a Sanford Bernstein Black Book just to be cool, you know, just to <laughs> show you're cool. Not that for Alicia Levine. She writes a terse one-page memo. Alicia, I want to go right to the risks that are out there because we're risk-free right now. We're massively risk-on. And I want to go to the, just a simple one. Are we grabbing like eight months of performance in two weeks? I mean, is that that's not valid, right? Well, let, let's say that maybe we're grabbing eight months of performance in the previous quarter, right? So October represented the first time that we surpassed the previous high. So for like, you know, 12, 15 months, we sloshed around at the same levels more or less, even though the if you looked at it on an annual basis, it looked pretty good. So the fourth quarter was extraordinary. The earnings estimates, to my surprise, have not come down for 2020. They're still hanging out there at 9 to 10%. And that's actually kind of unusual because normally by December 31, you have some softness in the estimates for the following year. Can I rip up the script? Sure, absolutely. JP Morgan, one single headline. Year-over-year revenue is up 9%. Yeah, no. That's stunning. It's stunning. Both city... And J.P. Morgan did it on the, on the fixed side, on the fixed in- income. Okay, it's a roulette. Oh, come on, it's a roulette wheel. Right. We used to spin the wheel. <laughs> no, I mean, look, the banks have shown us they've gotten through the compression in yields. They got through the inverted yield curve pretty good. If they can get through that, I think they're set up for a really nice year this year. They're still trading inexpensively relative to their business lines. So, Alicia, I don't know if you know, but Tom's dollar cost averaging into the equity markets this year. 0.005 per day. (laughs) Exactly. After being in a triple leverage cash fund for 2019. Should he be chasing the FANG stocks, the tech names, the leaders of this market, or getting a little bit more conservative utilities, some of the more defensive sectors? Look, you're talking to somebody who was around in 99 and 2000. Okay. (laughs) So, like, I get queasy when I get asked that question. On the other hand, you know, if this is a liquidity-driven market... And if we're going back to the kind of the high growth stocks pushing it, we see a positive year. You have to own some of it. You have to own some of it. So look, Google based for 18 months, Facebook based for almost two years. Those are kind of interesting. Also, Amazon has never surpassed its old high. Also kind of interesting. Mm, yep. So I, you have to own some of those large cap 
tech stocks, but I just wouldn't overdo it. You know, 99 looms large in my mind. And by the way, everybody's talking about how great their 401k did last year. That makes me nervous. It makes me really <laughs> nervous. I don't want to hear that, right? Because it means everyone's piling in. So how about, you know, the other, I would say kind of a, I'm not sure if it's a consensus trade, but a trade I hear a lot about is people think about where there could be some opportunities in 2020 after the great 2019 is maybe like emerging markets, uh, small caps, things like that. Do I need to think a little bit outside the box? So we like actually overseas markets compared to the U.S. this year. We still think the U.S. is positive. We're still the best house in like a mediocre neighborhood. Yep. But the issue is that signing the trade deal and separately from that, an, an uptick in growth is going to be felt most noticeably in the European markets and in emerging markets, simply because they've underperformed yeah. for so long. I mean, emerging markets underperformed for 10 years. Europe under has really underperformed since 2012. So this is an interesting place to put some capital. Most U.S. investors are not allocated right. overseas, and they should be. Alicia they Levine be. with this uh, BNY Mellon. What are you seeing your clients do? What is the action plan, year-end review, Maybe tax planning, but what's the mood out there? So is, there's a is, lot. Is, there's is it a, exuberance? There is there is fear. There's fear. No, not and, about the Red Sox, about <laughs> markets. <laughs> so there's rebalancing. There's rebalancing. So fixed income had a great year last year, but also equity markets had a great year. So we are advising our clients that diversification is the name of the game. It's the only closest thing that's a free lunch out there, and you should definitely rebalance so you get some sort of protection out there. We still think duration is playable for risk off markets. There is still that negative correlation out there between fixed income and equities. So when I think about the market's performance, the equity markets in, in 2019, it was pretty much all multiple expansion. We have to have some earnings growth this year to drive this market. And as you mentioned, are you concerned that earnings may be too high out there on the street right now? Because it just seems like we're set up for just the quarter by quarter ticking down of earnings estimates on, on the street. So as long as, so right now we're between nine and 10% for earnings growth in 2020. If earnings growth comes in around 6%, which is more or less historical averages, you can sustain the market at this level. The real risk is if you go sub 5%. We see the first quarter sort of being an air pocket in terms of growth. And we see the the U.S. economy doing better actually over the summer. That's really where you're going to get the full benefit of those three rate cuts and the global liquidity yeah. coming. And so you have to play. You have to play because you have to get performance. But you should also just realize your, your earnings Is, estimates are coming I, down. I'm afraid to ask this question, but I'm going to go. And if you don't know the answer, that's okay. Is Apple over-owned? Is Apple under-owned? So my contract says I can't answer that question. Because about individual stock, yeah. right. Yeah. Tell okay. me about share buyback. See how I segued out yep. of that, right, to something <laughs> pretty good. I mean, tell, I mean, if the market goes up and multiples get stupid, MBA 101 says don't affect share buybacks or at least at the margin increase share buybacks. Are well, you hearing that out there? I'm not hearing that. I'll tell you what happened in 2019, though. Your share buybacks gave you a 2% difference in your net income growth versus your EPS growth. So your EPS growth was marginally positive versus your net income, which was negative because you had a smaller share count across the S&P. Huge buybacks last year as a result yeah, of the, the repatriation. Yeah. Hard to buy stocks at this level, I would think. If you Are see, you observing that where CEOs go, no, we're not going to do that? That's not, not a, yet. That's not a way to make friends and family. No, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. I, th I think if you still see so buybacks this year, you can still buy the market. 
Alicia, I think they're signing a trade deal tomorrow. Do we care? We definitely care. Okay. I don't think it's nothing. Okay. I don't think it's nothing because, look, if I'm reading the headlines correctly, China has agreed to purchase up to $200 million in U.S. ag per, uh, per products. That's very important for the farm states and very important for the Midwest. <laughs> Separately, there is an agreement, and we'll see if this is enforceable, that there will be no forced technology transfer. And as you know, those were one of the structural issues that the U.S. really wanted to get for this. So this is something, and don't forget, some of the tariffs are coming off. We should see an uptick in CEO confidence. And if we get an uptick in CapEx, we're off to the races. See, and then I guess then the question becomes not to get greedy, Phase oh, two. Oh, no, we would never do that in this <laughs> Not in surveillance. Phase two, is that something the market even cares about, or is it just taking off that uncertainty of President Trump and the trade issues is enough for the market? So right now, the phase one really is about uns okay. getting rid of the uncertainty and not escalation of tariffs. If there's any phase two, it will start in the next administration of which whoever is sitting in the White House. This is not easy. This is oh. about changing the Chinese economy. Don't think that's going to happen. Alicia Levine, thank you so much to BNY at Mellon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.